So if you haven't been with us, um, or you missed last week, uh, we went through Habakkuk 1 and a little bit of Habakkuk 2, and uh, we saw Habakkuk doing something uh, that a lot of us do sometimes. He was telling God what's up, right? He was looking around his life. It looked like it was very unfair, and he went up to heaven, and he was like, what is going on? Uh, he was a righteous man surrounded by wicked people. They were oppressing him, and he was like, it looks like you're not answering my prayers. And God answers him and says, here's my solution. I'm going to have your nation conquered. And then Habakkuk looks back up to heaven and is like, that is not the answer to my prayer that I wanted, right? Um, which happens to a lot of us all the time. But uh, there are these key verses in Habakkuk 2, uh, verses 3 and 4. Uh, God says two things. There is a vision of what God is doing that is coming and that righteous people shall live, have life, by placing their faith in this vision, their trust in this vision of what God's going to do. Um, And the vision of what God is going to do to make all of this right is in Habakkuk 2.5 to 2.20, what we'll be studying this morning. Uh, This is what is going to take Habakkuk from a place where he's like, what's up, God, in the beginning, to a place at the very end where he's saying, even if my life falls apart, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. However, uh, to our American Western 21st century ears, uh, this passage is going to make us squirm a little bit. Uh, Sometimes the scriptures do that. Sometimes they picture things that just make us go, ouch. I remember uh, about a a month and a half ago, I was teaching through Jonah 2, which is this prayer of Jonah's when he's in the belly of the whale. And the author of Jonah is clearly... uh, criticizing and making fun of this prayer. And I started class off by asking a question, is it ever okay to make fun of someone else's prayers? And to a man or person, y'all were like, oh no, never. It's always wrong to make fun of someone's prayers. And then we read a passage that was making fun of someone's prayers. (laughs) We were trying to be nicer than Jesus, I guess, you know? Um, And this morning, um, we come come to another passage uh, that might make us squirm a little bit. It pictures the goodness of God's judgment. In fact, uh, it pictures God's people so victorious over their enemies that they are taunting them. Yes, you heard me right, taunting. That's in verse 6, okay? Shall not all these, that's God's people, all right, and the former conquered nations take up their taunt against him. That's the evil king of Babylon, evil world empires. This passage is a series of taunts, you know, uh, the dictionary defines taunt as provoking or challenging someone with an insulting remark. You little kids do this all the time. Ha ha, you can't catch me, right? right that's what a taunt is. Um, and we have a picture here of God's people at the end of time, victorious. So victorious, they are doing the equivalent of an end zone dance. And uh, that might make you squirm a little bit that God's people would rejoice at the judgment of their enemies. It sounds very impolite. It sounds immoral. And I I promise you guys, uh, the application this morning is not go out and taunt your enemies. Okay, that's not where we're going. That's not where this passage lands. All right. It's a little more complex than that. But what we need to know before we before we read is that this passage gives a picture of God's people victorious over their enemies. That it gives a picture of his people who've been oppressed through history and struggled and fought and lost many battles finally victorious. And it's this picture that brings Habakkuk from a place of questioning to a place of joy and submission. 
And it might be the picture that brings you from your questioning to a place of joy and submission. So uh, let's read really quickly before we read verse 5. It's a very tough verse. Just know that it compares uh, evil people, particularly the king of Babylon, to wine. It's a very interesting picture, but it gives this idea that they they consume others. So we'll start in verse five and read all the way to chapter twenty, or uh, all the way to verse twenty, and then pray and then hear from the word. Here we go. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death. He never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. That's the king of Babylon. Verse 6, shall not all these take up their taunt against him, against the king of Babylon, with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, and to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray. God, we pray the the Spirit would come now. Holy Spirit, that you would come. And uh, first, uh, just enable us to understand this passage. Um a difficult one. We just pray you give us understanding. We pray uh, just for the faith um, to receive this as good news, to respond to it as you would have us. Um, I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, oftentimes the Christian life is a very painful paradox. A paradox uh, is something that seems to be absurd. It's, a, it's something that seems to be untrue, like jumbo shrimp, right? That's more of an oxymoron, okay? But something that seems to be untrue, but when you examine it, it's actually true. And the Christian life uh, often feels like a very painful paradox. For example, okay, 
If you're a Christian, if you know Jesus, you are a son or daughter of the living God, the King of the universe. You belong to him. You are that significant. And yet you struggle to get likes on your Facebook posts. Maybe that was too close to home. If you're, if you're a Christian, the most interesting and beautiful and desirable being in the universe has set his love and affections on you. But other people often don't, and it wounds you in ways that are unthinkable. You are a future ruler of the universe, but you're at the bottom of the flow chart at work, and you can't even rule over your messy apartment. Um, this paradox is more painful in parts of the world where Christians are actually oppressed and persecuted. Uh, there's a recent story in the news about a girl named uh, Leah Sharibu. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her last name correctly, but she was one of about 120 Christian schoolgirls captured by Boko Haram, uh, which is a terrorist, a Muslim terrorist organization in Africa. Anyways, uh, Leah and her classmates have all been brutally treated, sexually assaulted, all those horrible things in their captivity. And every classmate besides Leah was released because Leah refused to renounce Christ. So you've got Leah, someone who God loves, whom God has set his love upon, whom he is giving the kingdom, right? Who is kept in captivity because of her faithfulness to Jesus. That is a very painful paradox. And Habakkuk is uh, living in and about to live in that kind of paradox. He's one of God's righteous people. Last week we learned that in spite of his prayers, uh, God is not uh, going to suddenly help he and the other righteous people. He's actually going to send Babylon to destroy his nation. Um, Habakkuk himself will suffer a captivity. He'll suffer conquering, even though he's one of God's people. And this passage, as difficult as it might be to us in our ears, actually presents a picture of this paradox finally resolved. God's people finally victorious, finally invincible. No more pain, no more oppression, no more fear, no more enemies. I think as we, as we see God's judgment rescuing his people, we will see it as a good thing. So first, uh, we see uh, in verses five, or, 5 and 6 that the present victims are future victors. The present victims are future victors. Verse 5 is a very difficult verse. It's one a lot of commentators debate on, okay? But just notice at the very end of verse 5, it says, He gathers for himself all the nations and collects as his own all peoples. That is certainly the king of Babylon, okay? It's a picture of an evil, uh, evil world ruler conquering people with impity, okay? Uh, and the rest of the verse seems to compare him to wine. Just think of how someone who's drunk, wine has consumed them, okay? I think the idea there is that just like wine consumes somebody who drinks too much, so this king is consuming all people. I think that's what it means. But regardless, okay, the idea there is that for a long time, this evildoer is going to get his way. There's going to be a lot, and, and this, in history, we see that too, right? For a long time, it seems, evildoers get their way. That's, that's Habakkuk's present reality. Okay, that's what's happening now. It's what's going to happen for most of his life. But verse 6 begins with, shall not all these, and that is all the people Babylon had oppressed, particularly God's people, shall not all these take up their taunt against him 
the king of Babylon, with scoffing and riddles. So the idea here, all right, whatever, however you struggle with the idea of a believer taunting somebody, okay, the idea is that God's people are now, will be, in this vision, so victorious, so invincible, so freed, they have won the game, they're doing the end zone dance, right? They are so, they are so safe from their enemies, they can safely even taunt them with no fear of retribution. They are finally free. So uh, just really briefly an application before we move on to the bulk of the vision, I think it's really important to say uh, in a culture where we are generally uh, not persecuted, when life uh, is generally relatively easy, when most of us have been raised in a context that has said, if you're good and you love Jesus, God will bless you, right? That's how many of us were parented, all right? Obey and God will bless you. And there is a lot of truth in that statement, right? Uh, However, um, most Christians around the world right now, when they obey God, they get oppression and persecution. And primarily, that is the reality for most of the Christian life. Oftentimes, obedience to Jesus is costly in the context of circumstances where most of the time, the world and countries of the world are opposed to Christianity. Um, And again, we have been raised in America. We are are coming out of an age where Christianity was well-respected where uh, Christian values were taught in the culture. We're obviously seeing a lot of that undone right now, but it's, it's, it's changed. It's, made, it's changed our perspective about this whole judgment thing, about this whole, we think that, you know, most people are pretty good, right? And life is pretty peachy for, those, for people who walk with Jesus. God blesses the righteous. And that is a true statement. However, think about the guy in Saudi Arabia who confesses Christ and is almost immediately executed, right? Think about how he interprets what life with Jesus is like. That is more of the norm. John Calvin famously said uh, he compared the Christian life uh, to the great Old Testament story of God rescuing his people from Egypt, taking them into the wilderness for 40 years, and then bringing them to the promised land. And he said, okay, unbelievers are in Egypt. They're They're enslaved. When God rescues us, he rescues us, redeems us in Christ for the wilderness. Right? So we're still in the wilderness. That's the reality of your life. Now, I'm not saying we're going to wake up tomorrow and people are going to be attacking Christians in the streets, okay? But I am saying, uh, if you live in America, don't put your trust in it, okay? All cultures eventually go the way of Babylon. They eventually become Babylon. Just expect that this life will include difficulty and trial. And the beauty of that, this passage is that when you embrace that, and you're not surprised every time something bad happens, right? You're not freaking out when the news reels are talking about stuff. When you embrace the reality of what life is like, the beauty of this passage is one day you, if you know Jesus, will be victorious. One day, no more enemies, right? One day, no more struggling with sin. Whatever you're wrestling with this morning, okay, whatever issues in your life this morning, there will be a day when you beat it. There's hope in that. I mean, you depressed? You caught in sin, right? You will win eventually if you remain faithful to Jesus. And our brothers um, throughout the world 
our fellow brothers and sisters in North Korea right now, in Saudi Arabia, in Afghanistan, who right now, their faith is costing them their lives. There's a day in God's love where they will be victorious. There's a lot of hope there. It's a great saying that says, uh, I, you, may, you may lose the battle, but you'll win the war. That's the Christian life. Yeah. You might lose the battle today. Like you might, you, might, you might lose, but the war is won. There's hope there. But how? Okay. How, is, uh, how does God bring victory to his people? Okay. What does he do? Uh, what exactly are we going to be rejoicing in? All right. God is going to bring victory to his people by conquering their enemies. Okay. Um, and again, this passage is structured in a way that is very difficult. It is a group of righteous people rejoicing over the destruction of their wicked oppressors. That is a tough image to swallow. All right. But just think about this. All right. What do you think happens uh, when uh, the military or a military um, liberates a Middle Eastern city from ISIS rule? Are the citizens happy or sad? What happened uh, in, in World War II when the Allies reconquered Europe? If you guys don't know World War II, I hope you do, okay? The Na- Nazi Germany conquered Europe, okay? Oppressed and enslaved the people of Europe, sent millions of Jews to be killed, right? What do you think happened when the ally arm- Allied armies came in, destroyed the Nazis, and got the cities back? There was rejoicing in the streets, you know? People throwing parties, primarily throwing parties over the defeat of their enemies. It's a natural thing. There's no freedom, right, without the defeat of your enemies. So we see this. This isn't unjust. It's a, it's a response to God being good, to judging for his people. God's judgment in this passage is fearsome and terrible. But it's fearsome and terrible in the way an army is, right? It's big. It's destructive. It's huge. But if an army is coming to deliver you, if that squad of Navy SEALs that is so intimidating, right, is coming to rescue you, right, it's a good thing. That's what we see here. So let's, um, let's walk through uh, how God is going to rescue his people through judging their enemies. We see five woes or taunts pronounced against the enemies of God's people. We'll walk through them, okay? So taunt one in verse, uh, verses 6 through 8, we see the plunderer. Plundered, okay? See, the guy who's stealing stuff, we see his stuff stolen. Look at, uh, look at the uh, middle of verse 6. It says, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Uh, you get an image here of someone uh, who's very rich, and the reason they're rich is because they have stolen lots of stuff. The idea of the guy in his, his room full of gold that he just stole it all, right? Um, and there's lots of different ways people do this. Notice uh, at the very end of verse 6, the person who loads himself with pledges. That's somebody who's uh, practicing corrupt financial practices. That was a practice in the, in the uh, ancient, ancient Near East. You could lend things at a high interest rate, oppress the poor that way. All right. You've also got people who are uh, literally plundering. Right? They're, they're conquering nations and stealing their stuff. So everybody from the loan shark to the warlord who steals from people to the CEO who keeps his employees poor to get his $10 million bonus, all those guys are covered here in this first uh, oracle of judgment next one in verses uh, 9 to 11 we see the secure ashamed it says woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high so the idea here 
This guy may not be stealing stuff. He may not be financially oppressing, but he's doing evil in order to have gain for his house. Actually, uh, this is the guy who is doing evil things to save up money for his kids' college expenses. He's worried about his house, his, uh, his family, his prosperity, okay? And the idea is that he thinks his riches and his wealth are going to make he and his family secure. He does whatever it takes to get financial security. What's going to happen to him? Verse 10. You've devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. Um, the guy who sought to make his family and his heritage secure will forfeit it. He will get exactly what he deserves and what he most feared. Verses 12 to 14, okay? We see the builder burnt up. This next woe is a, a little bit difficult. It says, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Um, this is a person or a nation that builds their empire on the backs of other people. All right? Get the image here? Building a city on blood, all right, is an image for building your nation, accomplishing great things, getting security and prosperity for your people through the blood of other people. Founding a city on iniquity, okay, is building great things in un with unjust ways. That is a perfect picture of the Babylonian Empire. They conquered, they oppressed, they enslaved, they killed. And I just want to pause for a second and say it is also um, a pretty good picture of why things are so sweet here in Charleston, South Carolina. You guys get that, right? Why do we have a booming economy? Why is stuff so nice here? Why, why is everything so, so set up downtown that's so nice? It's primarily because we took land from other people and then enslaved an entire race of people to build our nation up. And uh, you might be thinking, well, I didn't do that, right? But we've all benefited from that. Our forefathers did that. And we're not going to, we can't, we don't have time to really, to really dive into this. But uh, I know a lot of white evangelicals who are like, dude, just stop talking about the race thing. Like, come on, man. I'm not a racist. All right, so what's the big deal? All right, the big deal is that God pronounces judgment on nations that build their empires with iniquity. This should be something that we own, that is dear to us, that we, that we say, man, we did this, right? Um, now, I'll just, I'll just, real quickly, I'll just say, is your, the allegiance of your heart primarily, on this issue, is it primarily to the nation that you love or the God that you serve, right? And the way you think about this, right, is your allegiance primarily to America? Now, guys, listen. I think that our nation is, I believe in American exceptionalism, that our nation was founded on principles that are exceptional, unlike any other nation in the world, right? However, the reality of our history, right, what actually happened in the history of our nation, okay? Um, but where's your allegiance, right? Are you unwilling to see someone else's perspective? In fact, a brother in Christ or sister in Christ who's of a different race than you, their perspective on our nation. Just chew on that. Back to the text. What happens to people who build towns with blood, who founds cities on iniquity? They do so for all their work to be burnt up. Look at verse 13. 
It is not from the Lord of hosts, or is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire? Empires that are built on the backs of other people eventually are destroyed, either through temporal judgment or the day when Jesus returns. It's like James says, people who oppress the poor to store up riches for themselves do so for a day of slaughter. The people who build their empires on the backs of others will get exactly what they deserve and what they most fear. Two more. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gain at their nakedness. The abuser is humble. This is a very interesting verse. It's a very dark verse. Uh, this person is someone who's, is, who's in a position of power, probably the king of Babylon or someone like him, who's forcing other people to get drunk. Okay, he's making his neighbors drink. Read that there. You see that? All right. He, he's making his neighbors drink. And then skip a line. It says, in order to gaze at their nakedness. So as someone in a position of power who's using his power to make other people get intoxicated to satisfy some sexual perversity in their heart. That's the idea here. Okay, it's a dark verse. Um, it happened in Babylon a lot, apparently. But listen, there's good news here, guys. Nobody ever gets away with a date rape or sexual assault. Nobody gets away with it. God avenges them. That's what's here, right? You see that? The Me Too movement's been really good. It's brought, brought to light a lot of bad stuff going on in America. But guys, whatever justice Harvey Weinstein gets, okay, it's going to be nothing compared to what the Lord brings to abusers in the Day of Judgment. That's good news. They will get exactly what they deserved and what they feared the most. Final. Finally, we see the idolater is abandoned, okay? Uh, an, an idolater is someone who makes their own gods. In Old Testament times, it was literally like carving a picture of the god you would worship. Notice that in, a, in a verse uh, 18. Its maker shapes it. It's a metal image that you make. Uh, but the, the idea is at the end of verse 18. Its maker trusts in his own creation. So it's not just the, uh, the Hindu with the, the idols on his shelf, right? Someone who makes up his own God, who makes his uh, career his God, or makes his relational or social life his God. They're trusting in their own creation. They're making their own God. And uh, what's going to happen to them? Look at verse 18. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone, arise. Why is it a woe to them? Because a wooden thing can awake, and a silent stone can arise. The idolater will be abandoned person who trusts in their career or a future spouse or whatever will be abandoned by it. It won't, it won't give them what they hoped. And in contrast to all these deaf idols, we get the final verse in Habakkuk 2. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In contrast to idols who can't speak, the Lord's presence is so overwhelming that nobody can speak before him. His judgment coming to save his people is so overwhelming, no one speaks. And what's interesting about Habakkuk 2, um, chapter, five, or chapter 2, verses uh, 5 to 20, is that there's one sense in which all of this has already come true. Everything pronounced here came upon Babylon. Kings of Babylon drank the cup of God's wrath. The empire of Babylon was burnt. All those things happened. However, this passage uh, points us forward to a future day 
when this will come. Verse 14, we'll spend a little time here later, but the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is a verse about the end of time. It's uh, from Isaiah 11:19, and in that context, it's very clear. This is talking about the future. There's a day coming when the whole earth will be full of God's glory, and that only comes after God comes, and he returns, and he judges the wicked and brings his people. Um, so what happens to Babylon in its historical judgment is just a picture of what is going to happen to this present world when the Lord returns. And it's, it's really interesting. Actually, uh, if you read the book of Revelation, we'll be studying it this fall. Um, the author of Revelation, John, picks up these images. In fact, uh, Babylon is talked about all the time in Revelation. It's, a, it's this image he makes of the evil world uh, empire. And there's this place in Revelation 7 where Jesus the Lamb opens the scroll which reveals what he's going to do in the future. And heaven is silent before him. I think that's right out of Habakkuk 2.20. The Lord is going to return and judge his enemies and rescue his people. So, a little tough, hard passage. A lot of judgment here. Let's, uh, I want to give you guys two applications, two things to think about. Okay, first, it depends on who you are. Okay, the first is to run from God's coming judgment, and the second is to rejoice in it. Both of these will be a little tough. So I just want to encourage you, if there's an aspect of your life in Habakkuk 2 that is taunted, there's something... Uh, going on in your heart that the Lord says woe over, you should flee from it. And you're probably like Leland, forcing his neighbor to drink. I don't do that, okay? I'm not, I'm not building an empire on blood, okay? Let's just walk through a couple of these and seek to maybe translate this into the 21st century. Notice, uh, notice in verse 9, okay, there's a guy who uh, gets evil gain for his house. So he's doing wrong to save up money for his children. You're like, I don't even have kids, Leland. I'm free, right? Um, maybe you're worse than this guy is. Maybe you are doing evil to spend the money on yourself. Maybe you're uh, refusing to give generously as the Lord has called you to. Maybe you're refusing to say that my treasure is in heaven. My possessions are not mine, right? J.D. Greer says, uh, I just love, I love his little phrases. He says, live sustainably give extravagantly. That's what the New Testament teaches about giving, right? Maybe you are doing evil and refusing the Lord's call to give, to spend the money not on your children, but on yourself. Your bank account reveals what you really love. This fourth woe that we're all like, there's no way this is me, right? There's no way, okay? I don't make my neighbors drink to gaze at nakedness. I want to give you guys a fact that blew me away. When I, first, uh, when I first heard it. So I'm sure, I hope, that you've heard about one of the greatest injustices uh, in 21st century world uh, is human trafficking. Have you even heard about this? There's a giant movement throughout the world um, where primarily women and children are stolen and enslaved. Um, many cities in the United States are hubs for human trafficking. And many of people who are trafficked are trafficked for sex slavery. All right? Um, did you know that one of the leading uh, fuels 
causes for the human trafficking movement is demand for pornography. Now, you might not be uh, making your neighbors drink to get to their nakedness, but you might be making a few clicks. And if you're doing that, okay, you're participating in the oppression of millions of people throughout the world. See it that way. It's not, uh, guys, a lot of guys describe this as a personal struggle. It's just, you know, I'm struggling with this. Really, you're participating in one of the most evil things there is in our nation. And there is grace and mercy if you will run from this. But you know what it is. And fi- finally, this is the one that gets all of us, uh, 18 to 20. People who make idols. The New City Catechism says that idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our health, happiness, significance, or security. Putting our trust and our heart and our heart's rest on anything other than our creator. Everybody in here has got something. Here's the thing. This passage calls you to run from God's judgment. God pronounces judgment on sin so that you can flee from it and be saved, Christian or not. And here's the crazy thing about Habakkuk 2. Here's the thing that might blow your mind. Look at, uh, look at verse uh, 16. Middle of that uh, really difficult woe, it says, The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. There's a picture that God has a cup full, brimming over with his wrath that he's going to pour out on the king of Babylon. Anybody remember what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was about to be crucified? What his prayers were? He prayed, Lord, let this cup pass from me. He's talking about this image right here. Jesus has borne and taken everything in Habakkuk 2. He's been the one plundered. He's been the one put to open shame, the one taunted. Jesus has taken the judgment here, and he's taken it. So this morning, wherever you are, whether you've been, whether you're you're far from God, you are the guy here, right? Or whether you've been a Christian for 15 years and you're wrestling with something here, he took the judgment of this passage, everything dark and scary in here, so that this morning you would be free to run to him. And the craziest, the craziest news in the world is that the judge of the universe, the returning king, has taken his own judgment for the sake of sinners, for his people. It's unbelievable. And if you're someone who has run from judgment to Christ, if you're someone doing that this morning, the second application for you which is maybe even a little more hard to wrap your head around, would be to not just run from God's judgment, but in a sense to rejoice in it. Now that sounds like crazy talk. Um, Again, like I said earlier, God's judgment is something we should fear. It is something fearsome and terrible, but it is fearsome like an army that is coming to rescue you. Again, just, just be aware of how your culture has influenced you. We live in the West. One of the basic assumptions of the West, all right, is that people are basically good and do not deserve judgment. That's one of the basic assumptions of our culture. It's not biblical. So our squirming at the idea of God judging people is primarily rooted in that. Now, there's a, a genuine, a genuine Christian horror that eternal people would be judged, right? I get that. Jesus wept over Jerusalem, right? We should be compassionate to lost people. Please don't hear me say that we should be happy when people perish. God's not happy when people perish. 
I'm not, right? In fact, uh, this passage draws us into another paradox that Christians at the same time as we with tears plead for lost people to be saved and we spend our lives laboring for that, praying for them, pleading with them, sharing the gospel with them, at the same time we should realize that if these people do not repent, in the big scheme of things, God's judgment is a good thing. As one of those brain obliterating categories, but it's in the scriptures. And just understand, if God did not judge evildoers, just think about guys, what would you do? I mean, what do you do with a king or a father or a judge who allows the rapist, the murderer, the gang member, the unrepentant ISIS terrorist to go free? Again, each one of those guys, each one of those guys, they repent, the blood of Jesus covers them, they're saved. But if they go to the grave unrepentant, can you live in a world where they get off scot-free? Can you live in a world where that's okay? When the people have been murdering Christians, right? When they're just clean? No. Guys, God's judgment is a good thing. It tells us that God actually loves his people, that he cares for them, he fights for them. Again, um, there is a paradox here. We love lost people. We seek their salvation. We labor for it. But at the same time, there is a day coming, I promise you, when you are going to be able to rejoice in God's judgment. Here's how I know that. Revelation 19, okay? This is one of the strangest passages in the whole Bible when I first read it, okay? Revelation 19, there's this picture. Jesus returns. He judges Babylon. He destroys it. Babylon represents this evil uh, world empire that's oppressing God's people. Jesus destroys it. There's a few chapters where people are responding to this. And finally, you hear God's people's response. In uh, Revelation 19.2, it says this, Hallelujah. Salvation and power and glory belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, and he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried, Hallelujah. The smoke goes up from her forever and ever. So God's people in glory, the saints in heaven who are perfect, when they are confronted with the end times judgment of Jesus Christ returning, they sing. Again, that's, that's tough, but there's a day um, when we will see that. And we'll see God's goodness in his judgment. There's a, a great book that I think is required reading for all Christians. And uh, it is... Uh, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. And he talks about how understanding Father, Son, and Spirit is the central to the Christian life. And he says that it's the only thing that makes sense of God being love. That God's always been love because there's always been three persons, right? But anyways, uh, he describes how understanding God as love would impact your understanding of God's wrath. And he says that God's wrath is what happens when pure love meets evil. When, when God's saving, tender, merciful, abundant love meets the evil done to his people, that's when God's wrath and judgment comes. And God brings his wrath and judgment to bring us to that day in verse 14, where the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When Jesus returns and he remakes the heavens and the earth, 
there will not be a blade of grass or a human being or anything that is not full of the knowledge of our glorious, wonderful God. You will be happy forever because God is going to come and judge and save. So one of the greatest stories uh, ever told uh, helps us see that true love often involves judgment. Uh, it's one you guys probably haven't read unless you were forced to. It's the Odyssey. Uh, long story short, it's about a man on an extremely long and unhelpful journey. Just think of a guy who is stuck in the airport trying to get home for 15 years. Okay, That's the Odyssey. All right. Go back, to, go back to the Greek world, 15 years, you're in layovers, right, okay? This man, Odysseus, um, had a beautiful wife named Penelope, who was faithful, who was his love, and uh, anyways, he can't get home. It's been so long that everyone thinks he is dead, and uh, all of these evil men have come uh, to Penelope, uh, first trying to marry her. They are her suitors, okay, but primarily... Uh, they're just pretending to be her suitors, and they're actually devouring all of Odysseus's possessions. They're, he's, they're just sitting all day, feasting, drinking, destroying his house, all pretending to try to get Penelope's hand. Anyways, they've been doing this for years, years. Penelope's been faithful to her husband. She still believes he's alive. Anyways, Odysseus finally gets home. The connecting flight finally works out. And uh, he begins by disguising himself to see if Penelope's faithful. She was, and then he reveals himself, and what do y'all think happens? He slaughters all of the evil suitors to a man. Now, that is not a story about how to, how to forgive people, okay? It's not, a, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a moral story, okay? Here's how to live, all right? Uh, but it is a very good picture of the future history of the world. God is the husband of his people. He is the spouse of your soul. He loves you with an everlasting love. And right now, he sees you surrounded by suitors, other things tempting you, afflicting you, taking your heart away from him. And there's a day when he's coming, and he's going to come with his affection and love for you and destroy all of those things that keep you from him. And then like Penelope and Odysseus, you guys will live happily ever after because of God's judgment. Let's pray. Lord, uh, like, uh, like you've said uh, already in Habakkuk, the righteous live by faith. I pray, Lord, you give us faith um, to receive this passage as your word, to rest in it, to rejoice in it, and to just have our intellects and emotions humbled. Just, Lord, I just confess a there are many ways in which my culture influences me more than the scriptures. And I just pray you'd, you'd help and work and be gracious. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.